Dear Lord, we praise you and thank you that as the psalmist wrote, Thou art our God whom we can praise and exalt and give thanks to for your goodness and for your mercy which endures forever. Thank you, Lord, for being such a wonderful, great, merciful, kind, loving, just God. And now, Lord, as we come to this time that we have set aside to study the the earthly life of your Son, may you bless each of us with something special from your living word. And, Father, I would pray that we might each totally now yield ourselves, body, mind, and spirit unto you and put all of our outside thoughts into captivity to Christ, that we might hear that which the Spirit has to teach to us this morning through thy word. Thy word is truth. Sanctify us through thy truth. For we pray in Christ's blessed name. Amen. We are continuing our outline from last week. Last week we looked at parts one and part two. Today we're going to look at parts three and part four, traditions about Sabbath rest by the Pharisees, and three truths about Sabbath reverence and practice. Let's just jump right into the scripture and uh, look at Matthew 12, beginning with verses one to two. All right, Matthew 12, verses one to two. It says, At that time Jesus went on the Sabbath day, through the corn, and his disciples were unhungered and began to pluck the ears of corn and to eat. Now, over in Luke's account, in Luke 6, 1, by the way, it says that they also rubbed them, the ears of corn, in their hands, thusly. All right, that's not in Matthew's account. All right, let's look at verse 2. It says, But when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto him, unto Jesus, Behold, thy disciples do that which is not lawful to do upon the Sabbath day. The tension of the Jews in Jerusalem against Jesus. Now remember, that's where he was in our John chapter 5 sermon that we looked at last week. He was down in Jerusalem. So the tension must have been very, very thick after he had pronounced that powerful sermon of chapter 5 in John. If the religious rulers had sought the more to kill him when he had made that simple statement in John 5.18, My father worketh hitherto and I work. They must have now been absolutely frantic to see him stoned to death after the many additional claims that he made to deity and also his direct accusations of their own spiritual darkness, you know, in that response that he gave to them. Of course, if you weren't here, you don't know what I'm talking about, but you can look at John chapter 5 and you'll see that not only did he repeatedly claim to be equal with God, to be divine, but he accused them of not even knowing their own scriptures. So they must have really been hot to trot to see him get killed. Knowing, of course, their renewed desire to do away with him, he, um, and knowing also, of course, that it was not yet his time to die, the Lord Jesus, we are told here now, removed himself along with his disciples from the holy city. And where do you think he went? Back to Galilee. We've already, you know, we're only still in the beginning of our study of the Lord's earthly life. And how many times have we seen him go back and forth, back and forth? He certainly did a lot of walking, didn't he? So he's on his way back to Galilee. And somewhere along their route, and we are told it was on another Sabbath. That is, uh, I don't think we saw, yeah, we do. It's in the first verse. It was on another Sabbath day. His disciples were hungry. Now, I'm sure the Lord was hungry as well, but he had gotten used to not eating a whole lot. Remember, 40 days without food? 
So it does, we're not told that he actually ate, but his disciples, we are told, began to pick some heads of grain. Now, literally, in the Greek, the word that is used that we see in our English, it says corn. In the Greek, it really refers to either wheat or barley. Now, back in 1611, when the King James Version was translated, the word corn in English referred to any kind of grain. You know, not just a corn on the cob like we think of it. But when they used the word corn back in 1611, it referred to any kind of grain, uh, wheat or barley, etc. So this was most likely, most commentators say this was either wheat or barley. The plucking of the grain by the Lord's disciples was the simple act of either stripping a stalk of wheat or barley of its seeds or breaking the head off of the stalk where the seeds are located. And then the seeds would have been rubbed together. I don't know if any of you have ever done that. They'd be rubbed together in the hands to remove the husks or the chaff from the seeds and then possibly even blowing on what was in the hands so that the chaff would be blown and what would be left, the grain which then they would eat. Now, the right to do this was, because this wasn't their fields, right? They're just walking, they're passing by, but there was this right given to the disciples, uh, to all of Israel, in fact, from the law, the law of Moses. In Deuteronomy 23, 25, you can read about it. So the issue here is not that of stealing. They were not stealing something to eat from some farmer. There was a way provided by the law of Moses for the needy to be helped, or for travelers. I mean, they didn't have the, the quick eats, you know, so the drive throughs so they could grab themselves a hamburger. So this was something God provided for hungry travelers on their way. They could just... Now, they weren't allowed to put a sickle to the grain, you know, because that would be getting more than they needed. But they were allowed to just take what they could and eat it with their hands. So as I said, the issue here is not a matter of stealing when the Pharisees get all uptight about this. Uh, and if the Lord's men had done this on any other day than the Sabbath, everything would have been hunky-dory, no problem. The, the Pharisees would not have had anything to accuse or complain the Lord about. However, they did this on the Sabbath. To pluck any kind of grain on the Sabbath, as you can imagine, with what little bit we have been learning about the Sabbath day, what would have been considered a Sabbath sin by the, um, the religious rulers of Israel because it was a form of reaping. And remember how we talked about father sins? This would have been a father sin. Um, to, to pluck any kind of grain. And then to rub the grain in their hands would have make, made the disciples guilty of threshing, another father's sin. And then if they had blown on the, the grain in their hand to, to remove the chaff, that would, then they would have been guilty of winnowing. So they would have been guilty of three father sins, reaping, um, threshing and winnowing. And the total of those three works would add up to yet another forbidden practice on the Sabbath, which was preparing a meal. <laughs> and really, when you think about it, it's so hypocritical of the Pharisees to, um, to be criticizing the disciples for, for eating these meager grains of wheat or barley or corn or whatever it was, because it was their custom to feast sumptuously on the Sabbath day. To them, that's what the Sabbath was all about, was eating. <laughs> they, they were notorious for feasting on the Sabbath day, and here they are complaining about the Lord's disciples eating just a few grains um, of wheat. 
Now, where in the world did the Pharisees come from? I've, you know, when I get to heaven, I can't wait to find this out. How in the world did they get there? This is a real mystery. Were they hiding in those grain fields? Remember now, the Lord is on his way from Jerusalem to Galilee. <laughs> and they're so ubiquitous. All of a sudden, there they are. <laughs> uh-uh, you know, shame on you. And I thought, how in the world did they get there? Were they waiting, hiding in the grain fields, ready to pounce on the Lord for doing something wrong? Were they secretly following him? Or were they just always hanging around him? I think they were just always hanging around him, going wherever he went, watching his every move, so as to have more ammunition to use against him. Now, another interesting question to consider is how the Pharisees themselves got out to the grain field. Did they not have to extend a lot of hard work on the Sabbath in their efforts to trail Christ and to spy on him and his men? You know what? Their own Sabbath laws forbid them to travel more than 1,000 yards from their home. Now, that would be 3,000, roughly 3,000 feet. It was forbidden for a person to leave or walk more than 1,000 yards from their home on the Sabbath. So, what were they doing out in a farmer's field somewhere between Jerusalem and Galilee? Obviously, more than 1,000 feet from their home. Of course, now, you know the Jews always found loopholes to get out of these rules they wanted to impose on everybody else, but they managed to find loopholes. So they had devised certain ways to get around their own Sabbath laws concerning this uh, limit on where they could go. For example, they determined that they could actually travel further than a 1,000 yards if they tied a rope across the end of their street, you know, where they live, if they tied a rope down at the end of the street, because then they said that the entire street became an extension of their own home, their own dwelling place, and then they could travel another thousand yards from the end of the street where the rope was. And you see, if they went ahead and tied another rope at the end of the next street, they could, they could travel across the whole city. I mean, this is it's so ludicrous, but this is actually what they did. Another trick that they did was to deposit food at the end of the 1,000-yard limit at a given place on Friday night. Before the Sabbath began at sunset, they would put food. They'd go out a thousand yards and put down some food. And then you see on the Sabbath, they could walk to that food, which was within the 1,000-yard limit, eat the food, which would then, they said, establish a new home by the fact that they ate there. It was then, therefore, they said, an extension of their home because they had a meal there. And they could walk from the food that they had just eaten or the place where they had put the food, they could walk another 1,000 yards. You see, if they were ambitious enough the day before and nobody had touched their food, no animal had eaten it or somebody had found it and eaten it, they could plant food all the way from Judah to Galilee. And perhaps that's what these Pharisees did to get out to this cornfield. I don't know, but then that would be rather difficult because they would have had to have known the route that Jesus was going to take. But at any rate, as we've discussed in the past, uh, the religious rulers of Israel over the centuries since the giving of the Mosaic law had added to that law one Sabbath regulation upon another until they had taken matters so far beyond God's original intention that they often contradicted God's original intention. In one section of the Talmud, 
which is the rabbinical commentary on the Torah, or the law, the first five books of the Old Testament called the Pentateuch, which is the Torah. The Talmud is a commentary on the Torah. In one section there are 24 chapters on nothing but Sabbath rules. And of course, now let me just say this, there was some justification for their great concern regarding the Sabbath. It was, after all, one of the Ten Commandments, and it is the longest of the Ten Commandments, by the way, and you can find it in Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 to 11. 11, um, honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. It was also Israel's disregard for the Sabbath that was one of the reasons for her 70-year exile in Babylon. The exile lasted until all the missed Sabbath years had been made up. And you can read about that in Second Chronicles 36, verses 20 and 21, and also Jeremiah 17, 27. You see, not only were they supposed to honor the Sabbath every seventh day, but they were supposed to let the land rest every seventh year and not uh, plant their crops, not plow it up and plant it. They were to let the land rest, but they had not done that for 490 years. So God allowed the land to rest by removing them from the land so that they could make up those uh, 70 years. If you take seven and uh, if you take 490 and divide it by seven, you get 70 years. They had neglected to let the land rest. They had neglected the Sabbath year, the seventh year. And so Lord took them into Babylon. So you can understand that the Pharisees did not want to see such a terrible deportation happen to Israel again. And uh, we can understand why they were so strict about it. And we can be sure, too, that there were many Jewish people and even some of the religious rulers who did keep the right spirit concerning the Sabbath, that they saw to it that it was a day set aside to rest and um, and honor the Lord, just as there are today many Christians who keep a right spirit about the Lord's Day. Not that the Lord's Day is the same as the Jewish Sabbath, because it is not at all the same. But the problem was that the scribes and the Pharisees and the rabbis had added 1,512 of their own regulations to God's regulations about the Sabbath. And in doing that, they had reduced a right and a proper observance of the Sabbath to a burdensome form of legalism. They had become formalists who emphasized the trivial and ignored that which was most important. They had a form of godliness, but denied the power thereof. We've already mentioned some of the do's and don'ts that they had added, but others, just to give you an idea of the fanaticism of this situation concerning the Sabbath, some of their other do's and don'ts included laws against lifting certain objects from public places and putting them down in private places. And it was also against the law to pick up something in a private place and put it down in a public place. And it was against the Sabbath law, they said, to pick up objects in wide places and set them down in legally free places. And you couldn't pick up something in a legally free place and put it down in a wide place. Of course, they got themselves all wound up and tangled in then having to define what constituted a wide place or what constituted a legally free place. I don't have a clue what defines a legally free place, and I doubt any of you do either. Throwing an object into the air and catching it, you know, throwing it into the air with one hand and catching it with the other hand was another violation of the Sabbath, according to rabbinical tradition. 
it was a breach of their Sabbath laws to eat an egg that a chicken laid on the Sabbath. Can you imagine that? Now, I don't know how they knew which eggs the chicken laid on the Sabbath. I guess they'd have to make sure the chickens were within 1,000 feet of their home so they could run out there quick and see. If the chickens laid eggs on the Sabbath, they were not allowed to eat those eggs. Uh, I even read somewhere that they killed the chickens that laid eggs on the Sabbath, but I don't know if that's true or not. Combing hair was not permissible because it was considered a work. And if a, if a hair happened to come out while combing, it was considered a descendant sin of reaping. No piece of food could be eaten, which was larger than an olive. So all food had to be cut into olive-sized pieces. In fact, it was even forbidden to swat at a bug. Even if that bug, bug was stinging you, you were not allowed to swat at it and kill it. Nothing could be bought. Nothing could be sold on the Sabbath. No clothing could be washed. A letter could not be sent. Baths could not be taken because water might spill onto the floor, and that would come under the category of washing the floor, which would be a father's sin, probably. There was to be no grinding, no baking, no drying, no sifting, no spinning, no shearing, no kneading, no separating or weaving of two threads, and very importantly, no fire could be lit or put out, which I would imagine would really be get dangerous. What if your house was on fire? What if your house caught fire on the Sabbath? Were you not permitted to put it out? If a Jewish person happened to get or be sick on the Sabbath, only enough treatment could be given to him to keep him alive. It was against the rabbinical Sabbath laws to do anything that would help to improve his sickness. Now, admittedly, the rabbis confessed having a rather difficult time determining just how much food or how much medicine was needful to keep someone alive and yet at the same time make sure that he did not get any better. And speaking of dangerous and extreme, we do learn from one of the uninspired apocryphal books, 1 Maccabees 2, that when a group of Jews refused to defend themselves against Antiochus Epiphanes and his Greek army because it was the Sabbath when they were attacked, what do you think Antiochus did? He slew them all, men, women, children, and all their livestock. One thousand people died. So the Jewish teachers had actually desecrated the Sabbath in the excessive and unscriptural attention they gave to it. They were putting the Sabbath in a far higher position than it deserved. They were, they, you know, it's interesting, they were coveting, think about the Jewish religious rulers, were coveting the popularity of Jesus and covet, you know, do not covet is one of the Ten Commandments. And they were planning to murder him, another one of the Ten Commandments. And that was breaking the breaking of two much more important commandments than honoring the Sabbath, because the honoring of the Sabbath is a ceremonial law. It is a non-moral law. So they were all hung up about it, and yet they were, they were themselves breaking two of the much more important moral laws. And by the way, all of the Ten Commandments except the 
honoring of the Jewish ceremonial law regarding the Sabbath are repeated in the New Testament. Let me just read you from a book by um, John R. Rice, read you some things that he has to say. He says, quote, in the epistles of Paul and Peter and James and John, every kind of duty is mentioned again and again and every kind of sin. Christians are commanded not to lie, not to steal, not to kill, not to take God's name in vain, not to commit adultery or fornication, not to be guilty of idolatry, to honor fathers and mothers. Every one of the Ten Commandments is repeated in definite words except the commandment about the Sabbath. Not once in the New Testament is there a single command about the Sabbath in all the lists of sins. Not once is Sabbath-breaking mentioned in the New Testament. Likewise, we are not commanded in the New Testament to be circumcised, nor commanded to abstain from pork. The New Testament does not give Christians commandments to keep the ceremonial law. Therefore, the Sabbath is not commanded to Christians, but is a part of the ceremonial law, and it was nailed to the cross, as we are told in Colossians 2.14.17, which states, Let no man therefore judge you in meat, or in drink, or in respect of an holy day, or of the new moon, or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. End of quote. He also says this, quote, But Sunday is not the Sabbath. The Bible never once speaks of it as a Sabbath. The Bible does not command Christians to keep Sunday as a Sabbath. In fact, the New Testament does not command Christians to keep any Sabbath whatsoever. The Sabbath was for Jews under ceremonial law. It was for no one else. It was a special covenant and sign between God and the Jews. To be sure, New Testament Christians do well to meet on the first day of the week for worship and service to God. The New Testament Christians did, as indicated in Acts 27 and in 1 Corinthians 16:2. It is called the Lord's Day, Revelation 1.10. But the Lord's Day is not the Sabbath day. It is used primarily as a day of praise and service, not as a day of rest. Its observance is voluntary and not commanded at all in the Bible. Our Lord's Day is grace, pure and simple, not law. We should encourage Christians everywhere to make much of the Lord's Day as a day of special privilege and blessing and worship and praise, but never call the Lord's Day the Sabbath. Sunday is not the Sabbath and never was. Do not think of it as the Sabbath. End of quote. All right, let's um, go to part two in our outline, Three Truths About Sab Sabbath Reverence and Practice. Now, the dictionary defines the word tradition as those elements of a culture passed down from one generation to another. The word tradition by itself is neutral, for it carries neither a morally good nor a morally bad connotation. So far in our study, we have been primarily talking about traditions as something negative, for example, the rabbinical traditions regarding the Sabbath. However, there are many situations where traditions can be good. For example, in 2 Thessalonians 2.15, the Apostle Paul wrote this. He said, Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which ye have been taught, whether by word or by epistle. End of quote. It, it is good for Christians to follow the traditions of Jesus Christ and the traditions of the apostles, as well as the traditions of the apostolic church. There is a whole category of traditions that are totally 
non-moral. They are like cultural customs. So we have good traditions, we have bad traditions, we have non-moral um, traditions, such as singing happy birthday on somebody's birthday or blowing out candles on birthday cakes or eating turkey and dressing on Thanksgiving or having parades and fireworks on the 4th of July for Americans or uh, tossing the bridal bouquet to the unmarried females at a wedding reception. All of these are non-moral traditions. On the other hand, as we've discussed, about the Jewish Sabbath, there can be a negative aspect to traditions. In Mark 7, Jesus spoke out against the tradition of men, saying that the Jews had actually laid aside the commandments of God in order to uphold their own traditions. And that's what we're talking about here with all these Sabbath traditions that they had added. Jesus said that they had succeeded in making God's word of no effect through their own man-made traditions. In his letter to the Colossian believers, Paul warned the, the, the Colossians with these words. He said, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men after the rudiments of the world and not after Christ. Colossians 2.8 The bad traditions of men and the teachings of false teachers threatened the gospel message. It was a real danger at the time of Christ as well as at the time of Paul and the writing of the New Testament. And there is yet a real conflict today within Christendom regarding this matter. We have a body of teaching in existence today that could be classified as the teachings of men or the traditions of men. And fortunately, we also have a body of teaching classified as the, the um, traditions of Jesus Christ and the apostles. The word of God is the final authority, not men. The word of God, it alone will tell us if something is a tradition based on truth rather than being based on what men choose to accept or change or deny about God's word. And then, of course, as we've said, some traditions are just simply neutral. They are non-moral. The Lord Jesus, once again, went to the word of God, as he always did. He went to the word of God, the scripture, as he defended his disciples against the Pharisees' accusation. I guess he was also really defending himself against their accusation because he was the one who allowed his disciples to eat those grains of wheat or barley or corn on the Sabbath day. And the truths that the Lord presented, which were illustrated by examples from the Scripture, proved that God's perspective and God's intention for Sabbath reverence and practice were not violated when he allowed his men to eat from the fields on that Sabbath day. So he taught first, and this is what we're going to look at next, he took, taught first that God's law allowed acts of necessity, which he then illustrated with an account from the life of David in 1 Samuel 21. He also taught how God's law allowed for acts of worship, which he illustrated by a reminder of the priest's work in the temple on the Sabbath day. And he taught that God's law allowed for acts of mercy, which he supported with a quote from Scripture itself, from Hosea 6.6, 6, and which he then illustrated with two examples, the example of the fallen sheep and then his own healing, Sabbath day healing, of a man with a withered hand. So let's look, first of all, at his first line of defense as he talks about God's law allowing for acts 
of necessity. And for this, let's read Matthew 12, verses 3 and 4, and then we're going to also look at Mark 2, verses 25 to 28. Matthew 12, starting at verse 3, Jesus is still speaking, and he says, or he, he answers the Pharisees, I should say, by saying, Have ye not read what David did when he was hungered and they that were with him? How he entered into the house of God and did eat the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, neither for them which were with him, but only for the priests. All right, let's move over to Mark and look at Mark 2, verses 25 to 28. And he said unto them, Have ye never read what David did when he had need and was hungered, he and they that were with him? How he went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar the high priest, and did eat the showbread, which is not lawful to eat, but for the priests, and gave also to them which were with him. And he said unto them, The Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. Okay, the key verse in this part of the Lord's response to the Pharisees and their accusation about his disciples eating from the field on the Sabbath day, the key verse is found in Mark 2.27 where he affirmed that the Sabbath was given for man's welfare. He said the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. God never intended for the Sabbath to restrict men from performing beneficial acts of necessity such as eating when hungry, like his disciples did, the Lord's disciples, or like David and his men did. It never, it never was intended to restrict men from defending themselves when attacked, such as those poor Jewish people when they were attacked against Antiochus Epiphanes and did not lift a finger to defend themselves because it was a Sabbath. And also, of course, he never, God never intended for the Sabbath to restrict men from taking care of and trying to improve the sick. And to illustrate this point, Jesus now drew from an account in David's life. David, King David, and his men, of course he wasn't king yet at this point, but he had been anointed by God to be the future king. David and his men had been very hungry because they had been fleeing from the wrath of the jealously eccentric King Saul. And when David went into the priestly land of Nob and into the tabernacle itself, he asked the high priest for food. Feeling compassion for David and his situation, the high priest allowed David and his men to eat the showbread from the holy place, even though it was, according to the law, only to be eaten by the priests. But after all, David and his men were famished, and the, priest had, the high priest had nothing else to give them. In God's sight, there was nothing wrong with what either the high priest or David did. Uh, the Lord Jesus here wanted his listeners, the Pharisees, to, to apply the principle of this event to their own lives because they had totally missed its application to themselves. They had read this story over and over again. They knew the story, but they had never taken the principle of the story and applied it to themselves. Here's the principle. God allows for exceptions to be made to his ceremonial laws. Notice I said his ceremonial laws, not his moral laws. He allows exceptions to be made to his ceremonial laws when something is an act of necessity. God was not offended by this act of necessity 
which did not break any moral or spiritual laws. He he did not. We know he wasn't offended because he did not chasten either the high priest or David for what they did when they ate the the bread off of the table of showbread in the holy place. God was willing, you see, for a ceremonial regulation to be violated when doing so was necessary for the greater good. And the greater good in this situation is the welfare and the benefit of his beloved servant David and David's followers who had been weak from hunger and needed physical strengthening. Now, moral laws are completely different. To break a moral law would never, ever produce a higher good. Never. So the biblical principle behind the showbread account, which the Pharisees, despite their knowledge of Scripture, had completely missed, was that ceremonial laws were to be in subordination to men's necessities. The ceremonial laws were established as a means to an end, and that end being the highest good of Israel. Ceremonial laws, such as the Sabbath law, were different from moral laws. Moral laws are not elastic. They do not bend. God does not ever make exceptions to moral laws so you know so that they can be broken. It is not in other words sometimes all right in God's sight to commit adultery. It is never all right to uh steal or to murder. However, it was all right to bend a ceremonial law in order to heal or rescue or defend or to nourish needy hungry human beings. David, the anointed servant of the Lord God, was bound to keep all the moral laws. Now, of course, we know he didn't, but he was bound. He was supposed to have kept them. There there was no exception where God would would allow him not to, to break one. Um, And this is true whether he would have had to have starved to death or not. If, If there was a moral law regarding the eating of the showbread, he would have just had to starve to death or find food elsewhere. Because the moral law, as I said, they are not elastic. They don't stretch. They bend. They are. The moral law is supreme, and man is under it, even if obedience to the moral laws leads to his own death. That's why those three Jewish boys held captive in Babylon were under strict obligation to obey the moral law, which required that they not bow to any other god than the true God, even if it meant being cast into a fiery furnace. In contrast to the moral laws, the ceremonial laws given to Israel could be violated for acts of necessity. That's what we're talking about in this situation, for acts of necessity. So the Sabbath, as Jesus said, was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath, the only one of the Ten Commandments that is non-moral, was to be a privilege for man, not a burden God meant it for man's welfare, for his benefit, for his highest good. It was not created to cause him harm. The doing of anything that is really necessary for the sustenance and the benefit of life does not violate the command that there shall be no work performed on the Sabbath. When men such as David and his followers and the Lord Jesus and his followers were in need of food, it was not a violation of the God-given sabbatic laws for them to eat the tabernacle showbread or eat some ears of corn in an open field. It therefore logically follows that since God made allowance for his own, ceremon- his own ceremonial laws to be broken under certain acts of necessity, then, then it logically follows that surely... He will allow for man-made traditions 
built around and added to his laws to be violated for the very same reason. So you see the Lord's beautiful logic and wisdom here. Since God allows for his own ceremonial laws to be broken under certain acts of necessity, then surely he's going to allow for man-made traditions, which is what the, this was all about, um, to be violated for acts of necessity. Now, the Lord concluded here his first defense with words that once again must have just utterly shocked the religious rulers. He said, therefore, the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. And they knew he was referring to himself when he said the Son of Man because he has already done this before on other occasions, and that's a messianic title. Essentially, he was saying that even if he had broken the Mosaic law of the Sabbath, not their their man-made traditions about the Sabbath, but if he had broken the Mosaic law, God's given law regarding the Sabbath, it would be his prerogative to do so. Why? Because he is the very one who had initiated the Sabbath in the first place. And that's true. So here again, the Lord Jesus was claiming deity. No doubt about it. He was claiming to be God. He was saying that he is greater than God's Sabbath because he is the Lord of it. In fact, he is the very one who the Sabbath was established to honor and worship. He is the Son of Man, the Supreme One, who has man's highest interest always in mind. He has the divine and the full authority to modify or suspend any ceremonial observance he chooses. If doing so is for the ultimate benefit and welfare of man. As Lord of the Sabbath, it was within Christ's authority to permit his men to pluck and eat corn, ears of corn or grains of wheat or barley on the Sabbath, even if it did offend the traditions of the Pharisees. Now let's move on to his second defense where he talks about God's law allowing for acts of worship. And this we only find in Matthew's account, which is interesting because Matthew wrote with Jewish readers in mind, and this is all about the priesthood, and the Jews would certainly be the ones to understand about the priests and their work on the Sabbath. So let's look at Matthew 12, verses 5 and 6. The Lord Jesus said, Or have ye not read in the law how that on the Sabbath days the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? But I say unto you that in this place is one greater than the temple. Uh, here, now, the Lord Jesus reminded the Pharisees, as if they didn't know their own scripture about what the priests do in the temple, but <clears throat> he gets their goat when he says, uh, have you not read in the law? He reminds them of the temple priests who profaned, he said, profaned the Sabbath laws weekly, broke them. The priests were not only allowed to do many things on the Sabbath, which seemingly violated God's Sabbath law about resting, but they were actually required to do these things. They, they had to light altar fires. They would kill the sacrificial animals and, and lift their dead carcasses and, and place them up on the altar. They were required to burn incense. They were required to change the showbread, offer uh, a double burnt offering, every Sabbath, and all kinds of other works which accompanied temple service. Actually, you could say that the temple priests did twice the amount of work on the Sabbath as on a normal weekday. 
Yet even the most legalistic of the Pharisees would not have accused the temple priests of violating the Sabbath law. The Sabbath was not only established for rest, it was also established for the sake of uh, service to God, worship. The priests were allowed to work on the Sabbath because their service, you see, was for the sake of serving God. David, back to David, David was in the service of the Lord when he asked for food. He was God's anointed king. Jesus and his disciples were definitely also in the service of the Lord. In fact, ministering to Jesus wasn't, and that's what the disciples were all about, well, partly, ministering to Jesus, was even a higher service than ministering in the temple, Jesus says, because he is greater than the temple. So he's really saying here that his disciples were um, doing something even more important than what the priests did when they profaned the Sabbath in serving in the temple because there was one there in that field, that grain field, who is greater than even the Sabbath. And can you just imagine, probably not, but can you try to imagine the anger of the Pharisees when they heard Jesus say this thing, that he, that he was greater than the temple? He says, but I say unto you that in this place is one greater than the temple. And they knew he was talking about himself. So he not only claimed to be the very one the Sabbath honors and the very one the temple serves, but uh, he claimed to be even greater than the temple and greater than the Sabbath. So how in the world anyone can study the gospel accounts and the words of the Lord Jesus Christ and ever, ever conclude that he did not claim to be divinity, to be deity, I have no idea because over and over again he definitely claims divinity. All right, his third defense is that God's law allowed for acts of mercy. <laughs> and for this we're going to look at verses 7 to 14 of Matthew 12, and then we'll also look back at uh, Mark all right, beginning in verse 7 of chapter 12 of Matthew, it says, but Jesus says, but if ye had known what this meaneth, I will have mercy and not sacrifice. That's a quote from Hosea 6, 6. Ye would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath day. And when he was departed thence, he went into their synagogue, and behold, there was a man which had his hand withered. And they asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath days, that they might accuse him? And he said unto them, What man shall there be among you that shall have one sheep, and if it fall into a pit on the Sabbath day, will he not lay hold on it and lift it out? How much then is a man better than a sheep? Wherefore is it lawful to do well on the Sabbath days? Then saith he to the man, Stretch forth thine hand. And he stretched it forth, and it was restored whole, like as the other. Okay, I would also like to read Mark 3, verses 1 to 6. <coughs> Excuse me. Mark 3, verses 1 to 6. And he entered again into the synagogue, and there was a man there which had a withered hand. And they watched him, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath day, that they might accuse him. And he saith unto the man which had the withered hands, Stand forth. And he saith unto them, this would be to the religious rulers, he says, Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath days, or to do evil, to save life, or to kill? But they held their peace. 
And when he had looked round about on them with anger, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts, he saith unto the man, Stretch forth thine hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored whole as the others. And the Pharisees went forth and straightway took counsel with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. <clears throat> the third defense that the Lord gave in regard to the Sabbath and his own sinlessness dealt with the fact that the Sabbath restrictions were never divinely intended to restrict acts of mercy. In Matthew 12:7, Jesus referred to Hosea 6:6, 6, 6, just as he had also done back in Matthew 9:13, right after the call of Levi, who is Matthew. He also had quoted from Hosea 6:6. 6, 6. Anyway, he quoted when he said, "But if ye had known what this meaneth, I will have mercy and not sacrifice, ye would not have condemned the guiltless." The same concept is here given to us as what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13 when he says though I do all kinds of things you know I do this and I do that but I have not love what does it mean? it means absolutely nothing even under the old covenant Sabbath observance was not a substitute for mercy or an excuse to withhold compassion mercy and love and compassion are, are the attributes which are to always characterize the children of God Sabbath or not Jesus was stating that God sometimes sets aside his laws for the sake of mercy. Since God is merciful, loving, compassionate, it follows that the Jews should have been overly concerned with demonstrating mercy and love and compassion themselves, especially on the day intended to honor him. It was in reality the legalistic cold-hearted Pharisees who were the true violators of the Sabbath they invalidated the words of God by their foolish traditions to illustrate this last point regarding acts of mercy the Lord on another Sabbath entered into a local synagogue probably in Capernaum now that he's back in Galilee and he taught probably from the scripture as was his custom during his public ministry and there was a man in the synagogue with a withered right hand we do not know that it was right a right hand except that Luke the physician happens to fill us in on that little added bit of information which neither Matthew nor Mark mentioned but Luke would be interested in that sort of thing most people are right-handed so this would mean that the man basically was pretty much unable to do a, a lot of your basic things it, he had a withered right hand and he was in the synagogue on that particular day. And the scribes and the Pharisees, who had perhaps even planted the man there, says that they watched him, not the man, but Jesus. They watched Jesus, whether he would heal on the Sabbath day. And the reason is also given for us, that they might find an accusation against him, Luke 6, 7. In Matthew 12:10, we are also told that they further tested Jesus by asking him point blank, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath days? Now, of course, you know that they did not ask Jesus so that they could learn the truth about the matter regarding the Sabbath, if it was lawful or not to heal on the Sabbath. They didn't care what his opinion was on it or what the truth was. They had already um, decided that they were going to um, kill him. And we are told that they did this so they might accuse him. 
Now, the scribes and the Pharisees were obsessed. They were obsessed. They were compulsive obsessive. <laughs> they were obsessed with finding a way to accuse Jesus before the people with whom he had become so, so popular. They hoped, of course, that he would actually heal the man with the withered right hand so that they could gain their end. And that reveals two very important things about them, about the religious rulers. First of all, it shows us their own real lack of concern for the Sabbath laws. You know, since they were baiting Jesus to actually break them, they, they deep down really wanted him to break the Sabbath law by healing the man. So what's that tell you about their real concern about the Sabbath law? And secondly, it shows us that they did not doubt the Lord's ability and his power to actually perform the healing. They knew he had the power to do that. And so that's amazing. And yet they're not convicted to follow him. But as was typical of the Lord, he answered the question of the religious rulers, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath days, with a question of his own. And his question takes the form of a hypothetical situation in which a poor man who owns only one sheep sees that sheep fall into a pit on the Sabbath. And then Jesus asks, what man shall there be among you that shall have one sheep, and if it fall into a pit on the Sabbath day, will he not lay hold on it and lift it out? In Mark and also in Luke, we are told that he also asked this question, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath days or to do evil, to save life or to kill? In response to these very profound questions by the Lord, the scribes and the Pharisees simply held their peace. We are told in Mark 3, 4, he had once again effectively silenced them. They knew that even the Talmud discussed cases in which it was lawful and good to lift an animal out of a pit on the Sabbath. And each one of them knew in his own heart that if that had been his sheep, he would surely have rescued it, Sabbath or not. Well, to then drive home his point, Jesus asked yet another question. He said, and this is in Matthew 12:12, 12, 12, how much then is a man better than a sheep? And the religious rulers could not say. You see, they were silent. They had to be silent because they could not say that human life was less valuable to God than the life of an animal, because man alone is made in God's image. Surely then, if it was permissible to do good on the Sabbath for a distressed animal, it was lawful to do good on the Sabbath for a distressed man. And that was his logic. Israel's ecclesiastical, unmerciful leaders were being told that in the presence of human misery, Sabbath or not, God's servants are not to remain neutral. If a person who professes to know God has the ability and the resources to help an animal, or particularly a person in need, on any day of the week, he cannot just stand there and do nothing. Such heartless, legalistic neglect would be the real breaking of the Jewish Sabbath. So, by way of his omnipotent logic and his divine wisdom, the Lord had once again turned the entire situation around so that the implication was that the true violators of the Sabbath were those who were content to leave a man like the one with the withered right hand or, or the paralytic lowered through the roof or, um, or the man at the pool of Bethesda. 
They were, they were, uh, the, if they were content to leave a man like that in his miserable condition when he could be healed, then they were the violators of the Sabbath. Jesus, you see, had the power, and they recognize it. He had the power to heal the man. And even the scribes and the Pharisees confessed that, or knew that. So they were doing evil by trying to prevent him from doing good. The biblical principle taught by the Lord in this third example regarding the Sabbath was that acts of mercy should supersede the ceremonial observance of the Sabbath. God desires mercy and not sacrifice. The scribes and the Pharisees remained totally silent. Unfortunately, this was not because they had been convicted or even convinced by Jesus. Mark 3, 5 tells us that the Lord looked on them with anger, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts. It was their obstinate pride and, and their hatred for him which really was keeping them silent. It is quite an incredible contradiction when you think about it, that Israel's rulers had learned enough about Jesus to know that his compassion and his mercy would compel him to heal the man even at the risk of his own popularity and that he even had the power to heal the man yet they were not one step closer to an acceptance of him as their promised Messiah their formal religionism had made them as blind as bats and just as heartless the man who suffered with a withered right hand meant absolutely nothing to them except as bait to trap Jesus they would not have cared at all if the man had to spend the rest of his life crippled. Their attitude, therefore, caused the Lord to look upon them in anger mixed with grief. And this is the only time that the word anger is used with reference to the Lord Jesus in the Gospels. I believe in the whole New Testament. The Lord's anger at the Pharisees was not, however, an indication of a flaw in his character. Anger is not a weakness if it meets the following three conditions. Number one, if it is evoked by a righteous and unselfish cause, which it was in this case. Two, if it is kept under rigid control, which of course it was also in the Lord's case. And three, if there is no malice in it, even when prompted to punishment. And again, the Lord Jesus met all three of these requirements. Anger is just and anger is right when it is not the result of a personal irritation but is the response to evil it is one of the strengths really of a person's character if he or she is capable of glowing with indignation over evil and yet does not sin and that's always of course how the Lord Jesus was he had righteous indignation and anger over evil and yet he never did sin because the Lord Jesus knew that it was lawful to do good on the Sabbath and because he himself is the Lord of the Sabbath, he said to the man there in the synagogue with the withered right hand, stretch forth thine hand. And when the man in faith obeyed the command, his hand was instantly restored whole just like the other one. And this is the ninth recorded miracle in our Life of Christ study. It's interesting to realize that even the most traditional legalistic Pharisee would not have been able to find a single Sabbath regulation or prohibition broken 
by the Lord's method of healing the man's withered hand. I mean, what could what could anyone have accused Jesus of doing in violation of the Sabbath? Could they have accused him of speaking? Because that's all he did. All the Lord did was speak the word, stretch forth thine hand. And believe it or not, I know it's hard to believe, but talking was not a violation of even one of their Sabbath regulations. Or what could anyone have accused the healed man of doing in violation of the Sabbath? They couldn't accuse him of carrying his bed pallet like they had with the man at the pool of Bethesda. The mere movement of a person's hand or even arm was not a Sabbath father sin. And that's all the man did. He was stretched forth his hand. That's all he did. So Jesus had actually succeeded in showing mercy on the Sabbath day, and he had done so without breaking any laws, Mosaic or Rabbinic. James Montgomery Boyce, in his commentary, says this. He says, quote, When he, Jesus, healed the man's hand clearly with God's power, he proved that his interpretation of the Sabbath and his acts of mercy on the Sabbath were right because they were approved by God. End of quote. Well, what was the response of the scribes and the Pharisees to the Lord's wisdom regarding the Sabbath and God's allowance for acts of necessity and acts of worship and acts of mercy, as well as his, his uh, subsequent healing of the man with the withered hand? What was their response? According to the three synoptic gospel accounts, they responded in three ways. Luke tells us, first of all, that they were furious. In Luke 6.11 he describes them as being, quote, filled with madness, end quote. Jesus had humiliated them with his flawless arguments, and infuriated they communed one with another what they might do. Then Matthew states that the Pharisees went out and held a council against him, how they might destroy him, Matthew 12:14. Why? Why did they have a council and decide, try to decide how they would destroy him? Because he had rejected their traditions and had made them look like fools when he used the scripture to defend his Sabbath activities. To illustrate his defense, think about this. Jesus brilliantly used their own greatest king, who was David. He used their own, the Jews' own priesthood. And he even used their own Sabbath activities with animals. So if he was a Sabbath breaker, then so were they. That's what he's getting at. It was so perfect and so logical and so wise, and yet they hated him for it because they could not respond. Last of all, Mark tells us that the Pharisees straightway took counsel with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. The Pharisees were even willing to join forces with their arch enemies, the Herodians. Now remember, the Herodians were a sect of Jews who supported the Herodian dynasty, and the Herods had no business at all ruling over Israel because they were not from the tribe of Judah. They were not Jewish. They were part Samaritan, and they were part Idumean. Or Idumean, at least uh, one of them was part Samaritan. I think it was Herod Antipas, but <coughs> the Pharisees absolutely normally hated the Herodians, but they hated Jesus more and so the two arch enemies came together in order to gain additional support in their plot to kill Jesus. Opposition by the nation's religious rulers had now moved beyond the criticism stage and had proceeded into the hostile stage 
because they were now determined that Jesus must die. All right, that is all. Let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God of understanding and a God of compassion, a God who loves to shower your mercy and your grace down upon your creation. Thank you, Father, that in the face of so much hardness of heart and rejection in this world, that you have not given up on mankind, but you continue to reach down and save some. Thank you, Lord, for saving us while we were yet at enmity with you, yet sinners, and were not even seeking to know you. Thank you for giving us the initial grace to have enough faith to stretch forth our withered-up hearts toward you as you beckoned us through the power of your word. And, Lord, I pray that each of us understand and realize that although the Sabbath laws no longer apply to us in the New Covenant, that the biblical principle of the Sabbath does still abide, that we are to set aside the Lord's Day Sunday as a day for worship. May we, although we are under the liberty of grace, may we still commit to cease those works which are for the here and now, for temporal and material gain so that we may enter into your courts with praise and hold fellowship with fellow believers and with our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you again for Jesus, who is not only the Lord of the Sabbath, but is the Lord of Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. And that he is the Lord of the universe and Lord over our hearts, or at least we should allow him to be. And I trust, Father, that each heart here has called upon the Lord Jesus for forgiveness of her sin and, and salvation. And I pray that if there is one who has not, that she would do that this very moment, that she would open her heart and ask you to come in and save her and repent of her sin and trust you for having died for those sins on the cross, and that she would turn to you and live for you the rest of the days of her life here on earth, and, Father, we ask now that you would bless each one of us as we go our respective ways and show us how to live for you during this coming week. For we pray these things in the wonderful name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and for his glory. Amen.